back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready for place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league? I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time they'll do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connected School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon. Oh, excuse me. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope that's not a sign of things to come. Hope. I also hope you're all having a great day on this Monday, the 25th day of April, the final Monday of the month. Hope you all had a very fun, safe, healthy, uh, eventful uh, weekend. Now, for yours truly, coming into the weekend, I thought that, oh, the number one thing I was going to come in and talk about uh, this week would be yelling at the performance of Garrett Cole last, uh, what was it, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, something like that, when he couldn't even get out of the second inning. And I'm sure like most Yankee fans out there, we were throwing our remotes at the uh, television set screaming, what, can you not pitch without spider tack? But he was able to qual that down with a dominant performance over the Guardians uh, yesterday. And the Yankees took care of business this weekend at against the Guardians. And in winning five of the last six games, I think it's kind of calmed down some of the issues, concerns that Yankee fans have. Now, listen, are they running uh, at at a smooth uh, pace? Or is it all systems go? No, because Gallo still ha hasn't hit much. Uh, you haven't gotten anything really out of Giancarlo Stanton. You hope that Saturday's walk-off hit was a sign of things to come for Gleyber Torres. And you're clearly seeing that DJ LeMahieu was hurt most of last year year because he's gotten back to being the DJ LeMahieu that we're used to. But You've gotten a good start out of Luis Severino in his first couple outings. Nestor Cortez, well, I don't think he's going to be pitching to a Cy Young level all year or going to be an all-star type pitcher all year. Is showing that last year was not a fluke. And the bullpen, outside of an occasional hiccup by Aroldis Chapman, has looked pretty good. Hell, you got a... Uh, Finally, a big game from Judge on Sat on Friday night, although most of us were not able to see it because it was one of those games that was put on Amazon Prime. But, uh, you know, even for all the complaints, all the troubles, all the issues you could have with the Yankees, they sit here on this Monday afternoon, a, a rare Monday where they're home and they got the day off, sitting here in first place in the... Uh, AL East um, with the, the Toronto Blue Jays um, looming who they go to play next week 
And listen, before you get to that, you got to take care of business against Baltimore and Kansas City this week. I mean, uh, 10 days ago, that series against the Orioles down at Camden Yards was unacceptable. So got to bounce back against them. You know, go out there, sweep them like you did with the Guardians, and then go win at least two out of three against the Royals. And then comes the real test against the Toronto Blue Jays. But for right now, I think any anger and annoyance Yankee fans had has been calmed down. The real annoyance I have is with another New York team that is currently playing that is near and dear to my heart. You know, I always I always refer to the sports teams that I root for as almost like my children. I, I, and please don't don't take that as like some kind of creepy comment from me. I've always the Yankees, they've always been the favorite child. They'll always be my number one when it comes to sports fandom. Unfortunately, the Jets are my number two, and that's because I'm a season ticket holder, and a lot of the time they cause me to go a number two. But number three in the power rankings as far as um, my sports fandom is concerned is the once upon a time New Jersey Nets, now Brooklyn Nets. And we sit here on this Monday afternoon on the precipice of them getting swept tonight by the Boston Celtics. And why why should I feel like it's going to be anything but that? Why do I why should I feel like oh all of a sudden they're going to wake up suddenly, rise up and have this big time performance tonight when I've seen nothing over the last game and a half that could give me any confidence, any true feel and belief that this Nets team is going to go down swinging. You know, over the weekend, you saw pride from the Toronto Raptors and the Denver Nuggets saying, we're not getting swept in our building. They stepped up and had big-time performances when everyone was counted at them out. But why should I believe that's going to happen with the Nets tonight? Especially, you know, I came into last week with a, and I don't want to say completely positive vibe because it's heartbreaking when you lose a playoff game on a buzzer beater. But I came in with the mindset of, you know, they had no right whatsoever being in that scenario with less than a minute left to steal that game from the Boston Celtics. And you had a off game by Kevin Durant and a phenomenal performance by Kyrie Irving. It was the Nets defense that let them down uh, once again. But it's gone from being an off game by Kevin Durant to an off series. And he's facing a defensive hounding from this Celtics team that he hasn't seen all year long. And that should be something that you should have expected coming into this series when you take into account the level of defense 
that the Boston Celtics have been playing since Christmas, since something switched there with the Celtics, where at a time you thought, oh, are they even going to make the postseason? And instead, they went on a run and were the best team in the Eastern Conference over the second half of the year. You know, in game two, I thought this was going to be a series. I thought that we were going to get that six to seven game grinded out war between these two teams because I'm watching, I'm seeing the the Nets up by as much as 17 in the second quarter. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. This is going to be that night. This is going to be the night where KD and Kyrie um, tell the Celtics, step aside, it's our night. We're going to tie this up before going back to our house. But instead, from that midway point on of the second quarter, it was a total collapse. They were up, I think the largest they were up in game two was 62 to 45. But the big issue you take with the Nets is they could not close out these quarters well. The second quarter and the third quarter, they closed out both horribly. You go up from being up by 17 at one point to the Celtics closing it out, and you almost think they're one shot away from making this a single-digit game heading into halftime. And then you come back uh, for the second half, and you've got nothing from Durant and Irving. Clearly, Kyrie Irving wasn't fasting uh, last Wednesday night because him and KD combined went a one for 17 from uh, the field. And meanwhile, you've got Brown and Tatum doing their thing, but you know they're getting this hustle from a guy like Grant Williams off the bench putting up 17. And you're looking at the Nets and you're like, where's that guy for them? Where's that guy that is stepping up, showing heart, that guy that... You know, is an all-effort, all-intensity guy for the uh, Brooklyn Nets. Instead, they're just playing a bunch of hero ball, a bunch of ISO up and down the court each time. And the Celtics are like, we got you figured out. We know what you're going to do before you even do it. It's either going to be KD coming down and a play um, drawn isolation for him. Or it's going to be Kyrie trying to make something out of nothing. They weren't really drawing up plays. And you know, once they were able to shut them down, the Nets, or the Celtics, excuse me, went on a run from the end of the third into the fourth, 23-4, to four, that essentially locked that game up for them. And, you know, Saturday night was, you know, immensely frustrating because... You get this great game out of Bruce Brown. You finally get, you know, one of the others to step up and have one of those big games. But Durant and Irving were once again, you know, just average. Meanwhile, you've got Jason Tatum putting up a performance that you would normally, (coughs) excuse me, expect from Kevin Durant and you know, you'll, the camera keeps flashing on Steve Nash, but I don't know what what you can expect Steve Nash to do because this team is run by Kyrie and KD. You know, there's 
the the first real adjustment you've seen of this series was when he put Blake Griffin in and that gave them a little jolt that gave them a, a bit of energy when he had those back-to-back threes but the problem is the Nets every time they got it within four or five points the Celtics would come down and hit a big three you know somebody would step up and and have a shot for the Celtics the Nets never got back-to-back stops and never put themselves in a position where they could hold serve on having a home the game in uh, Barclays Center. So now we sit here with, oh, about six and a half hours before what I think will in all likelihood be their final game of the season because there's so much, there's so much negativity around this team right now. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm almost in the mindset, well, I'm going to be sitting there. I'm going to be rooting for my team tonight. When they in all likelihood lose, and even if they win tonight, it's not going past Wednesday. When this series ends, you know, I'm almost going to take a, a, I'm not going to be sad. I'm almost going to take a deep breath and be like, thank God it's over. Because quite frankly, this has been the most aggravating season of Nets basketball I've ever watched. And listen, I'm glad they're in a position where they get me aggravated because there were a lot of those 60 and 70 loss seasons in the Brooke Lopez, Devin Harris era, in the oh New Jersey Nets era after they traded away uh, Jason Kidd. But all the drama that surrounds this team is just so overwhelming and so obnoxious to deal with at times that any net fan out there as disappointed as you are compared to what your preseason expectations were for this team as far as them being a championship level contender to you know getting eliminated in the first round you've got to admit that this has been aggravating to watch all season long between you know the Kyrie stuff with him not getting vaccinated and not being available for home games the team initially saying that he was not going they were not going to let him be a part-time player and then they got struck with injuries and all the COVID issues so in, in the middle of December they caved and brought him back and that, I think, began the downward spiral here from, you know, then KD getting injured to James Harden quitting on this team. Second year in a row, he quits on a franchise, forcing his way to Philadelphia. And in that trade, you bring someone even more obnoxious, even more that you can't stand having around in Ben Simmons to this team. And listen... I don't know whether he's injured or not, but quite frankly, it feels like he's pulling a gutless move here because how do we go from, oh, five days and listen, all along I've been saying I did not want them bringing him back during the postseason because 
I felt like it would have just created the circus, would not have helped this team um, one bit. Having a player of, of this caliber with all the outside noise surrounding him who hasn't played since uh, last May, bringing him back and just parachuting him in to a team that's trying to make a postseason run here. But how do you go from five days ago, we're hearing, oh, he's going to come back in game four, to him telling everyone how excited he is uh, before game three that, oh, I'm finally going to get to play basketball, to yesterday, all of a sudden he wakes up and he's got back soreness again. I'm like, come on. Are you, like, are you freaking kidding me with this? You know, Stephen A. Smith, who is a very controversial figure on ESPN. He uh, he put it best yesterday on their uh, uh, pregame show when he said, quote, it's pathetic, it's sad. At the end of the day, when the NBA gets in the collective bargaining uh, table and they go after the players in terms of a pay-for-play uh, uh, stipulation in the CBA, it's going to be called the Ben Simmons rule, end quote. And, you know, the, the nerve of this guy, like, you know, as I've said, I take the whole mental health issues seriously. And who knows whether he had them or not. But he forced his way out of Philadelphia. He's been now battling the Sixers over a grievance of $20 million that he feels he deserves. And he hasn't even played since late last year. And then to pull this, I mean, you know, who knows? Even if you had faked it, you got went out there, played five minutes, and then you came up lame and said, oh, my back is hurting. People would have respected that more than whatever you're pulling right here. And especially when you see him courtside at every one of these games um, at the Nets bench, and he's wearing these ridiculous outfits that are, you know, oh, hey, look at me, because he knows the camera's going to be on him when they see him in some kind of stupid outfit with sunglasses on indoors. And to add on top of that, the gall of Kyrie Irving over the weekend after the loss in, in game three, saying that the Nets are, quote, trying to gel and the Celtics have been gelling since Christmas, saying that it's the Nets are in a new experience as a group and we, we just have to respect that. Also would we'll go on to say that the team's poor play could be put on him as far as um, doing more, holding people accountable. Well, no. How about you hold yourself accountable, okay? Because you decided to go with the whole, oh, my body, my choice, or what was it? You were also refusing to take the vaccine uh, as some form of protest for all of the essential workers in New York City that were losing their jobs over not getting vaccinated. And that turned into a, a giant load of BS because what were you really fighting for in the end? You never, we never heard you or saw you out uh, 
doing anything. It was essentially you took a vacation. That's really what you did. You used this as a crutch to take your own personal vacation during the season. So you come off looking awful. Ben Simmons comes off looking even worse. KD's going to be ripped to high heavens because of his uh, bad play this uh, series. But hey, there's only so much one man could do when this roster, A, doesn't play any defense, and B, let's face it, is just so poorly constructed. And I don't know if Steve Nash is going to lose his job off of this. Quite frankly, it'd be kind of unfair and hypocritical when you could consider KD and Kyrie wanted him because he would essentially be their lapdog to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they felt was in their best interest. But quite frankly, as I said, I'm almost ready for it all to be over because this has been the most aggravating net season I have ever witnessed. A lot left to talk about throughout this hour. Get to some more thoughts on uh, the NBA postseason as we go on. Mix in some NFL thoughts. Uh, a surprising retirement last week. Uh, we'll actually talk a little bit of college baseball uh, a little bit later on, as well as proper fan etiquette after one of the more embarrassing things I've ever heard of over the weekend. So a lot left to get to over the next about 45 minutes here. Glad you guys could join me this week. So please stick with me, sit back, relax, help put your feet up on the table if you feel like it and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. No. Like I said before with uh, Ben Simmons, if he at least would have gone out there and tried and then came up with the back, you know, I could have respected that. Especially when you haven't played 
all year long. And then what you're seeing, what's going on around uh, the NBA postseason, where there have been a myriad of injuries to relatively important players. Like, just look at what's going on in the series involving his former team with the Sixers and the Raptors, a series that could end (coughs) tonight back in the city of brotherly love after the Raptors showed some grit, showed some toughness, dragged themselves off the mat and said, no, we're not getting swept up in Canada. We're going to at least win one game in our building and send our fans home happy in what could be our final game of, of our home slate. Now, they're not thinking of that mindset. They're thinking in the mindset of, oh, we've won one game. Let's go spoil their party and get another game back at home because we get a game six back here. That puts a lot more pressure on the Sixers, who are the more relatively healthy team, especially you look at the injuries that the, the Raptors have had to deal with. You know, they lose Fred Lambert in game four to a hip injury. Scotty Barnes, who left in the third quarter of game one uh, with a uh, sprained left ankle, you were unsure if we were going to see him again. And he was out there essentially on one leg on Saturday, gutted his way through, got 11 rebounds in 25 minutes, and showed at least a glimmer and signs of why he was the NBA Rookie of the Year uh, this year. You're seeing you know, elsewhere in this uh, postseason where injuries are affecting teams, but others are stepping up. You know, the the Bucks have lost their second best player in in Chris Milton. He's he's probably done for the rest of this uh, Bucks Bulls uh, series. But they're hopeful that they'll get him back and ready and geared up in time for uh, their next series. But guys are stepping up in big spots. You know. A fan favorite there is, of course, Bobby Portis. And on any given night, while he's not going to give you 20 every night, on any given night, he comes off the bench, gives starter minutes, gives that hustle, that extra intensity, that effort that the Bucks need, especially if Giannis is not you know, putting up 35 in that given night. But what has really helped uh, the Bucks in these last two games because you're worried, oh, maybe they're in, tr- in some trouble even as offensively hindered as the Bulls are. They split the, s- the first two games in uh, Milwaukee, get, a, uh, get it back in Chicago, but Grayson Allen has decided to uh, grace us with his presence, on, pun unintended, and has been a factor for these Milwaukee Bucks, has showed that when he's not committing dirty, cheap shot fouls, that he can actually be a contributor for an NBA (laughs) franchise. What a novel concept, Grayson. About damn time. 
And that has helped put the Bucs in position where they can lock up this series on Wednesday night. You've seen, you know, the heat, you know, the beat goes on. They lose uh, Kyle Lowry uh, to a hamstring injury, unsure on his timetable of return. Victor Oladipo, who hasn't even been in the rotation for this team, has stepped up and uh, contributed yesterday. But let's face it, the real reason that we're looking at the heat about to close out uh, the Hawks is because A, Jimmy Butler is once again showing why he's such a highly thought of star in this league. B, every single night, a, a different member of that Miami Heat team steps up and and you know they don't even think about oh when they're gonna get a guy back. They don't think about um, what they're gonna do uh, in the future. You know Eric Spolstra has installed a mindset with this team of all that matters is what happens in this game. Let's concentrate on this game right here and right now. And add to that the fact that let's face it, Trey Young has been awful. In this series, yeah, he stepped up and had the game-winning shot in Game Three. But you look at uh, yesterday; he was a, a plus-minus of minus twenty-seven. He's shot seven for thirty-three from behind the arc in this series. He contributed. He was a big contributor in the the Hawks turnover problems uh, yesterday, and the fact that you don't have that true number two, that real sidekick for him, has put the Hawks in position where they're in all likelihood going home after uh, tomorrow. Now that the, the high seeded team with an injury that I think. We need to have a little bit of concern about is, of course, the Phoenix Suns because they're in more of a dogfight, more of a grinded out battle with the New Orleans Pelicans than anyone would have thought. As we sit here right now with them tied up at two games apiece, heading into a game five to tomorrow night, because in in game two. They lost their star. They lost uh, the face of the franchise in Devin Booker to a right hamstring injury. And listen, even though he's young and younger athletes have a tendency of healing from injuries quicker than an older athlete would, it we're still talking about a hamstring. We're still talking about tightness where you can go from one day where it's feeling great and you're ready to go out there and play and then you go back out there and in the second quarter all of a sudden it flares up again and you're gone for two weeks and this has put the Suns in a uh, bad spot because you know they put Cam Johnson into the starting lineup but he's not done much for them uh, since uh, uh, Booker's absence and last night Last night might have been an example 
of how the Pelicans are going to try to play CP3 um, for the rest of this series if Devin Booker is truly done for this series. And it does sound like that as doctors are saying that he could miss uh, two to three weeks because you saw you know, Chris Paul after having a 28-point uh, performance in Game 3, the Pelicans shut him down last night. The Pelicans uh, kept him in check. And with the fact that you had a big performance by Valanchunas, who was getting lit up by DeAndre Aiden all series long, getting pushed around by him in, in the paint. CP3 was hounded uh, last night. From the second he got the inbound pass, um, Jose Alvarado off the bench was right up in his face. Even got him to commit a um, an eight-second penalty in the, in the uh, backcourt. And they were double-teaming him um, for most of the night, trying to force someone else to beat them. And that someone else never stepped up and uh, beat them. Plus... Now, this series, you're seeing Brandon Ingram take that next step. Take that next step from being a good young player to a perennial all-star, to a perennial, this guy can lead a franchise-type player with the, the uh, wonderful performances that he's put up. You, If you're a Pelican fan, you just dream about what could be if Zion Williamson ever stepped on the court again? And now that that is that is a very weird situation. That you know, a lot like with the Simmons uh, situation, would the Pelicans ever consider ever think about bringing him back during uh, these playoffs? Because there's been a lot of. Uh, a lot of differing reports. The organization doesn't think he's ready. He feels ready. He wants to play. So that'd be interesting if they ever even considered uh, going uh, that route. Now, a couple couple of these other series. Uh, you know, the other one that has been uh, more of a dogfight than I expected is the Grizzlies and the T-Wolves. And... You know, let's face it, if, if we're being fair about this, the T-Wolves, the Timberwolves, excuse me, should be up three games to one. That was that was shameful that they uh, lost game three the other night because they were dominating for 75% of that game. You know, up by almost 20 after one quarter, up by as much as 26 in the second quarter. The problem is Desmond Bain uh was uh, um, awesome from behind the arc. <coughs> Excuse me. John Morant um, was able to distribute it around. You got a little bit of something from everybody as they slowly but surely crept their way back into that game. And you got another you know, no-show performance by Carl Anthony Townsend. At what point? Now, I know, I know he played are great in game four as they barely eked one out to get this series uh, tied back up. But at what point, at what point do we start holding Carl Anthony Towns 
accountable? At, at what point do we start looking at him and saying, yo, bro, what the hell are you doing? How are you performing? This is the, only the second time you've been in the playoffs in your still relatively young career. And you're playing like this. This should be your moment to step out, to show the world that, oh, I was missing the postseason just because I had bad teammates, not because I'm underachieving in my own right. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of shameful the way that Towns has played in, uh, you know, half the games this series, especially in Game Three, a game where you should. You have such a huge lead. You have the Grizzlies on the ropes with game four coming up in your building. It shouldn't have had to have been you putting up a Herculean effort just to eke out a game four victory. It should have been you were going into game four with the pressure all on the Grizzlies. And now with things tied up, going back to Memphis, the uh, Grizzlies might be in a, back in a position where they're starting to smell blood. Um, you know, we finally saw the Luka Doncic return over uh, the uh, weekend, uh, his first game in almost two weeks. And what has been impressive here for the Mavericks is no, like I said, with injuries, you need somebody to step up. You need someone to show out for your team. And that guy has, has been Jalen Brunson, who you would never expect to be a 40-point scorer. But to put up 40 and not have a turnover was big for the Mavericks in Game 2, especially when they're trailing for most of this game. But he just had this killer mindset that we've never seen out of him before in the fourth quarter saying, we're not getting swept in our first two games at home. We're going to make a series out of this, even without our star and him and Maxi Kleber were just lights out from behind the arc. Something that uh, the jazz weren't able to match. And the problem for the Jazz, <coughs> excuse me again. The problem for the Jazz in this series has been that outside of one game, Rudy Gobert has not been a big factor here. This has been mostly a guards-oriented uh, series here, not one for the big man uh, to uh, flex his muscle much. And the, the other thing is, you know, Donovan Mitchell has not had a great series shooting-wise. You know, he was a 35% shooter from behind the arc during the regular season. He's only um, at about uh, 24% uh, through uh, this series, taking way too many threes. You know, At some point, if you're Quinn Snyder, don't you have to pull him aside and say, hey, let's change up the game plan here, go to the middle, try to get... A maybe a pick and roll to go bear and get him going just a, a little bit. Maybe that's what wakes him up and has him become part of this series because what you're doing right now is not working. Change up the game plan a little bit. And you wonder when the Warriors are going to 
change up their game plan. Because even though it's working, even though it's got them in a position where they're up uh, three games to one, you're not going to have Steph Curry coming off the bench forever. You're not going to have Steph uh, saying in all the right things and being okay with just playing his 35 minutes off the bench uh, in every game. At some point, are they going to switch it up and go with three guards and have just to keep Jordan Poole in the the starting lineup? Or do you have Poole go back to being off the bench? Now, he had his first bad game of these playoffs yesterday. Maybe that's where you look at and say, oh, now we can make the switch with us going home. But, you know, this series has put a spotlight for the rest of the NBA that they need to be concerned about. That the Warriors are back to being the Warriors. After a couple of years, down years here, without Klay Thompson, after losing KD and free agency, they've de- they've got Klay back, almost back to Klay level. Him and Steph are doing their thing, and you've seen a new, young, emerging star in Jordan Poole step out on the big stage in the NBA postseason and show that he's capable of making this, you know, the Splash Brothers 2.0, making this, you know, the depth lineup 2.0, and making the Warriors a very dangerous proposition to have to deal with in the West throughout the rest of these this postseason. All right, going to take another break here, turn my attention to the NFL with a familiar face trying to get back into the league. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Would help if I turn on the microphone before I start talking, but I digress there. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Once again, hope you all had a very good 
very safe, fun uh, weekend. You know, the final weekend, the final time before, you know, NFL becomes back into the picture here. The NFL, you know, has, you know, made a lot of headlines in the, the uh, last couple of days. The, the one that, that uh, I didn't think got a lot of attention, but quite frankly, we shouldn't be surprised about it, is the fact that they're going to play games on Christmas Day that we're going to have a a, a slate almost like what you get every year on Thanksgiving where you have a 1 o'clock game, a 4 o'clock game, and an 8-15 game uh, with the two afternoon games being split between CBS and Fox and the night game on um, NBC. Don't be surprising, A, Christmas falls on a Sunday, and B, the NFL has grown tired of just bowing down to the NBA on Christmas Day. You, you saw it a couple of years ago that they had a game on a Friday, and that's led to another thing that is uh, been talked about, that the league uh, is now working on plans to get a game on Black Friday, a game that would likely be scheduled in the afternoon due to the fact that uh, by rule they cannot have games on Friday nights from September through November due to an antitrust exemption and um, agreement that they have uh, with both college football and high school football. But that would be a first that the NFL's having a game on a Friday um, that wasn't in December since uh, the opening of the 1970 season between the Rams and the Cardinals. You know, we're going to we're going to see more on this schedule in the coming weeks cuz the schedule will be fully released when they have that big primetime special on uh, Thursday, May uh, 12th, but uh, an interesting tidbit there that no one should be surprised about. And the the, you know, the NFL, as I said, going to come really into the spotlight this Thursday with uh, the draft coming up. And every year, you know, the, when you're a fan of a bad team, I'm always seeing fan bases say, "Oh, tank for so and so, tank for uh, that pick." And quite frankly. My mindset has always been, no, it's not about where you draft. It's about who you draft. Because you can have as early a first-round draft pick as you want. If you don't pick the right player, you're screwed. You, you know, It sets your team back for a couple of years, whether it's at the quarterback position, whether it's a skill position like wide receiver or running back like when the Giants took Saquon Barkley, they were feeling themselves too much. And look where it's put them. It put them in the position where they then had to take Daniel Jones. And we're going into his you know, fourth year of his career. And we still don't even know if he's the guy long term. You know, the Browns. You know, they're trying to work on trading Baker Mayfield and after getting uh, uh, Deshaun Watson. 
and you know Baker didn't show enough through the first four years of his career to prevent them from saying, hey, we need to go get Deshaun uh, Watson, even with all the red flags attached to him. But they did make one smart investment in uh, that draft. Remember, they had two picks in the top four um, picks of that draft. One being Baker Mayfield, who, listen, he could say all he wants. He's insulted, feels disrespected by the Browns. He really should be sitting there saying right now that he's insulted and disrespected by his alma mater in uh, the Oklahoma Sooners. I mean, do you guys see that awful statue they revealed of him this week? He looked like he was a you know, 80 or 90 year old man, old man in that statue. It was hideous. But the smart move that the Browns made in that draft is they had two of the top four uh, picks in uh, the 29th or the uh, 2018 draft. And with that second pick, number four overall, they selected Denzel Ward, who's done nothing but ball out and be one of the top corners in this sport and have them in a spot where they have two rock stars going forward on that defense with Denzel Ward uh, in your secondary and then as your, your elite edge rusher, Miles Garrett, you know, making uh, offensive linemen fear for their life. Well, they rewarded Denzel Ward in this last week, giving him a five-year, $100.5 million contract extension, 71.25 of that guaranteed. He's now the highest paid corner in NFL history and is locked up with the teams through the 2027 season. And you go back to that 2018 draft, He's been the best player of the players taken in the top five with all due respect to Bradley Chubb from the Broncos. I mean, you look at the three players drafted ahead of him. The Browns taking Baker. They're about to move on with Deshaun Watson when he's able to play. The Giants took Saquon Barkley when, if they didn't like the quarterback crop that draft, they should have. Uh, traded back and you know taken uh, Quentin Nelson uh, to help what's been a glaring problem for them for years in the offensive line. And then you have the Jets taking Sam Darnold, who they already moved off of after three years, and now we're hoping that it's not the same scenario with uh, Zach Wilson. But you look at the other notable picks in that draft. Bradley Chubb going fifth. Quinn and Nelson going six. Josh Allen at seven. Mick Fitzpatrick at 11 to the Dolphins, eventually traded um, to the Steelers. Vita Vea at 12 to the Buccaneers. And Lamar Jackson at 32 to the Ravens. So it's not about where you pick. It's about getting the pick right. And we'll see you know, in the years to come, who got things right? Who got things wrong in this coming year's draft? Now, one player that 
could be traded before this draft and is going to factor big into this draft is, of course, Debo Samuel, who is amongst this young crop of wide receivers who are seeing the explosion of wide receiver contracts in the league right now, and he wants to get paid. He wants to get his uh, bag of cash being that, hey, he's a second round, a former second round draft pick. He does not have that rookie fifth year option. And he sees he sees the extensions that uh, Devontae Adams got, that Stefan Diggs got, uh, that uh, you know, all of these wide receivers around the league are now demanding, you know, Tyreek Hill forced his way out of Kansas City uh, to Miami because he wanted a bigger deal. And he's saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm younger than Tyreek Hill. I'm, I should be getting uh, this kind of money as well. You know, the problem here with uh, Debo Samuel is you're hearing mixed reports about how he wants to be used because he exploded on the scene this year when uh, they uh, started changing up his role, when Kyle Shanahan took him from being an exclusive wide receiver and started putting him in the backfield, using him as a running back, made him into a dual threat weapon. And he, by some reports, only wants to be a receiver because he feels being a running back that will take years off of his career potentially in the future. But that role is what made him special. You know, a year ago at this time, we weren't talking about Debo Samuel. He was just, you know, we knew he was a good player, but we weren't viewing him as a star skill position player in this league. But he caught fire and had an electric season as a dual uh, threat player, as both a wide receiver and a running back. And that's what's made him such a valuable commodity. If you know teams know that he only wants to be a wide receiver, then that lessens what the 49ers could potentially get back for him. And you know, I, I thought it was funny over the weekend, you saw the video that came out where he's at some nightclub somewhere and he's... Uh, uh, you know, dancing, whatnot, and there's someone holding up some, like, electronic board that says Debo's uh, staying with the Niners, and when it gets brought to his attention, he's kind of laughing, going like this, the, the cutthroat sign saying, like, nah, I'm, I'm out of here. That's, at least that's the vibe I got off of uh, reading uh, that, off of uh, looking at that whole uh, scenario, that whole uh, situation there. But, uh, you know, you you look at this um, for the Niners' sake, they have a chance to be that team that stands their ground and says, no, we're not going to be bullied by our player. We're going we're going to keep him. We got one more year control. We can place the franchise tag on him after that. And then these teams, you know, 
will start to say, oh, if they can do that, maybe we should be doing that as well. Now, before I take a break here, speaking of the 49ers, a former 49er is once again trying to get back into the NFL. And that would be, of course, the everly controversial Colin Kaepernick, who, you know, he did an interview last week on the I Am Athlete podcast that is hosted by uh, brand former NFL uh, um, receivers, uh, Brandon Marshall, Chad Johnson, as well as former corner Adam Pac-Man Jones. And he said that, you know, for the first time he talked about how he's prepared to come back to the league as a backup quarterback if he has to. And quite frankly, that's the role he'd have to come back to. No team after six years would just hand him a starting quarterback role and said that when I prove I'm a starter, I want to be able to step on the field as such. I just need that opportunity to walk through the door. And opportunity is all he's asking for, especially when he sees the league uh, has end racism on the back of your end zone, Black Lives Matter on the helmet, and feels that it's a mixed message because you have all of that but while you're promoting that publicly, internally you're not doing that by not at least allowing him a chance, at least allowing him an opportunity. But, you know, while, let's face it, he was blackballed out of this sport. The, the owners were gutless with the way he, they handled this. He should still be in the NFL. He should still be playing somewhere. He's also not done himself any favors with the way he handled things in the last couple of years where, you know, they gave him an opportunity. They gave him a chance about two years ago to come for a workout, come for what would essentially be a tryout for all 32 teams. And because he didn't want to sign that waiver, which is common practice amongst NFL players for workouts, for, you know, you know, when you see these teams bringing in guys, quote unquote, off the streets for these uh, private workouts, they have them sign these waivers. It's been a common practice for years because he didn't want to sign that. He threw a hissy fit and took his, his group and went to some high school field about 60 miles away from where the NFL had initially set up their workout for him. And it set a bad tone uh, with people around the league, set a bad tone with owners to the point where you wonder if they even want to deal with him anymore, if they feel he's even worth the headache anymore. So while you know, I support the fact that he was so gung-ho sticking to his beliefs. At the same time, when opportunity presented itself, he was his own worst enemy. And in a lot of ways, he almost has to look himself in the mirror and realize that he has cost himself the, the potential chance 
of getting back into the NFL with some of his actions in the last couple of years. All right, I'm going to take one final break here, come back on the other side, and you know, talk about uh, Jay Wright, as well as proper fan etiquette at sporting events. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. All right, only a few minutes left here, but a couple more things I want to address. Like this... This first story is something I've wanted to talk about for the last couple days. I've been looking forward to talking about this. And, you know, this is a rare time that I've, I think probably the first time I've ever talked about college baseball in a podcast. But uh, I'm sure most of you have seen that video of the altercation that took place last Wednesday between Weatherford College and North Central Texas College's baseball teams. If you didn't see it, (laughs) here's what happened, okay? In the sixth inning of the game, uh, Josh Phillips for North Central uh, Texas College hit a home run, and he's rounding the bases, you really can't, with the video, see close up to him if there's any jawing um, or uh, trash talk or whatever. But as he's rounding third base, all of a sudden the pitcher, Owen uh, Woodward, sprints off the mound and directly at uh, uh, Phillips as he's rounding third, not even looking at him, and almost hits him with the you no know, hits him with an NFL like tackle and is on top of him trying to beat the crap out of him from there it would lead to benches clearing with um many of phillips's teammates from nctc um coming off the bench and uh pulling a woodward off of him and it just led to a uh, an ugly spot in which the game had to be suspended and was eventually ruled as a forfeit for both teams. And since then, 
Woodward, uh, the pitcher, was given a four-game suspension by the North Texas Junior College Athletic Conference, while Phillips, who, as it would turn out, was given a two-game suspension due to being um, ejected on the play for taunting. Um, so he was being a little bit mouthy uh, with uh, players from Weatherford uh, College. And the conference also handed down um, – two-game suspensions for all of the members of North Texas, uh, North Central Texas College that were, quote, in the dugout or the bullpen uh, that ran onto the field, as well as a few of their assistant coaches in that scenario. And where it's let the problem it's led to is that was the first of a four-game series between these two programs. So be, with all the suspensions handed down on um, North Central uh, uh, Texas College, they didn't have enough players eligible for games two and three of that series, meaning they had to forfeit both of those to Weatherford, which seems kind of unfair to me. But since then, Weatherford was so embarrassed that immediately after uh, pitcher the pitcher Owen Woodward was given uh, his uh, four-game suspension, they've kicked him off the team. He's no longer part of their baseball program. And quite frankly, I think that punishment fits the crime. A lot of people have said, oh, that's too much, that uh, you know the suspension would have been enough. But come on, you, you can't let something like this go. You can't uh, act like something like this is acceptable or justifiable. Now, there have been reports of potential more punishment coming his way, him potentially being kicked out of school, as well as they're also looking into whether he should face a- any you know, potential uh, legal charges here, which to me, that's, that's a little much, saying acting like, oh, it's not like he pulled out a knife on the kid or the other kid or uh, had was swing. If he if he picked up the bat and was swinging it as a weapon at him, that's one thing. But he tackled him and was punching him. Something that we we've seen in baseball games um, over the years. But it's not something you want taking place in college athletics. Uh, throwing him out of school. Might be a, a bit too harsh. To me, what you do from here, he's off the baseball team, can't come back to the baseball team, and you don't allow him to transfer until next year, meaning he misses one full year of uh, potential play in baseball. Because you've, you've got to send a message here. You've got to send the thought that, oh, this can't be acceptable no matter what is said on the field. And listen, if, if Josh Phillips was really mouthy he and acted like a punk, then he deserves his suspension. But nothing that can be said on the field justifies him taking uh, things into his own hands and turning it into a fist fight, at least in college athletics. No, I mean, the guy hit a home run off of you. 
he won the battle there. I don't know what kind of war you're thinking that you're starting and thinking that you were just going to be able to get away with it like that. What was very surprising to me uh, last week was uh, the announcement of Villanova's head coach, Jay Wright, retiring. And this is something, maybe not so much me, but it hit my family hard as my sister is a Villanova grad. All of them have become Villanova fans because of that. And you know, it's surprising when you look at his age, he's only 60 years old. And with some of uh, the uh, coaches that we've seen retiring in uh, recent years, most recent being Coach K, you figured that, oh, he's going to be that next guy that coaches into their 70s, coaches forever, and you always view him as part of that one program for 40, 45 years. Well, as he said uh, during his press conference the other day when they were introducing his, uh, his successor, that this year he lacked the same edge that he enjoyed in the past, that, quote, you're either 100% in or you're against us, a mindset that he had instilled in his players over the years and would go on to say that during this season, it started to hit me. I started to look at where my coaching was. Everybody being in place, our staff, the team, we wanted to leave this place a better place than we found it. And we wanted it to be strong and a great position when we left. Feeling that you know, now was the right time to go. But like I said, it, you know, he... He was still running a top program. He was only 60 years old. It really caught me off guard with this. And you look at you look at his resume already after 21 years in uh, uh, Pennsylvania coaching uh, Villanova. He's established a Hall of Fame resume that got him put in the Naismith Hall of Fame before even retirement. You you look at. You know, 642 uh, career victories, 520 at Villanova. Was very good at Hofstra, including uh, getting to the NCAA tournament his final two years there. Probably what got him the job at Nova. In the final 18 years at Villanova, he made the tournament 16 times, missing it in 2011 and 2012. But... Uh, the 2011-2012 season and uh, in the 2019-2020 season, but that was only because of the pandemic. Made four Final Fours, won two national championships, including in 2016 with the buzzer beater by Chris Jenkins against uh, UNC. Countless uh, regular season titles in the Big East, a five-time uh, Big East tournament champion. Won a gold medal as an assistant for Team USA's men's basketball in last summer's Olympics. Now, it's, it's weird just seeing him walk off like this. But quite frankly, if anyone deserves to, it's him. And listen, there's going to be a lot of people that try to attach his name to jobs that pop up over the years. Hell, for years, anytime the Sixers job pops up, his name is brought up, and the Sixers at least give him a phone call. 
I don't think he's retiring to leave and go somewhere else. If you know, I could see a scenario where in a year off, he gets on TV somewhere. And I know there's always this, the mindset in, in sports, never say never. We've seen wacky things. But I would be very surprised if this is him pulling, you know, an Urban Meyer here where he retires and then all of a sudden pops up somewhere else a couple of years down the road. I think he's just way too classy a guy to do something like that. And, you know, as much as Villanova has annoyed me over the years because of how my family acts with them, got a lot of respect for what he has accomplished. And this, if this is truly the end of his career, what a ride it was. A well-deserved, shorter than we thought it was going to be, but well-deserved, well-earned retirement for Coach Jay Wright. The final thing I want to talk about today is the embarrassment that took place at Yankee Stadium over the weekend. And quite frankly, it was an embarrassment. It was an atrocity what took place at Yankee Stadium. Here we have what should have been the best win of the young season for the Yankees. Coming back after Chad Green blows the lead in the eighth inning, you know, you're down to your final strike against uh, the uh, Cleveland Guardians closer. And uh, Isaiah Kotafaletha has uh, the uh, biggest hit of his short tenure with the Yankees when he hits a two-out, two-strike double to left field to tie up the game at four. And then you have the nonsense with the fans where what happened was <coughs> on the play, because it was a line drive, the left fielder Stephen Kwan thought that he had a chance maybe to catch it. So he goes running back and his momentum took him smashing into the left field wall because he lost track of where the wall was and hit into the wall so hard that he actually had to be checked by trainers um, because, you know, while it is a, they do have the computer graphics on the left field wall, there is a chain linked fence that covers that up so that you're not just running into a computer screen. And while he was down being checked by trainers, there was fans in the left field stands that were celebrating potential injuries to him. And um, another one that was making derogatory gestures, so much so that it incited his teammate, center fielder, Miles Straw. And maybe this is what incited the whole situation. Maybe this is what created the problem. Miles Straw decided to scale the wall and come up face-to-face -face even with the fans and get in a confrontation uh, with them, a shouting matchup when, you know, listen, the fans were wrong what they're doing there, but Miles Straw should not have been climbing the fence, should not have been getting up in the fans' face because that, unfortunately, that that only incites the idiocy, the idiots that are in left field there. But unfortunately, this would all get worse when once play resumed, Glaber Torres comes off the bench and has a pinch hit RBI single to drive in uh, IKF and give the Yankees a win. And 
while it should be a celebratory moment, the Yankees jumping up and down in between first and second base, you know, all um, celebrating Gleyber Torres, that celebration was cut short because they noticed out in right field, as soon as the ball got past uh, Straw and the right fielder Oscar uh, Mercado as a base head and they realized they had no chance to throw him home, fans started from the right field seats throwing stuff uh, onto the field, including whether they were half empty or still full beer bottles. I think the first thing that was thrown was a, a plastic beer cup. And then that incited Mercado and Straub where they started approaching the fans and they started throwing more stuff <coughs> onto the, the field at them, even leading the Yankees to running out there along with other members of the Guardians to protect them. You saw Judge and Stanton putting their hands up saying, hey, no, this is not cool. Stop doing this. And while I respect I have a lot of respect for the way the Yankees handled this, uh, uh, especially Judge and Stanton running out there defending players from the opposition. That was an embarrassing scene. Listen, Yankee fans are always going to be criticized as the most hated fan base in in the sport. You know, viewed as that fan base that because they've won more championships than anybody were viewed as entitled because certain members of this fan base, especially the younger ones, think that, oh, championships are a given and that we should just sign every player under the sun. Any any player that becomes available should become a member of the Yankees. It should be a we point, they come kind of scenario. But... It's one thing to go to the games, cheer for the fa- for the team, boo the other team. It, you know, you sometimes see jawing back and forth, but between uh, opposition players and fans. But you don't have the right to be part of the action. Whether it's when we see fans run out onto the field and run around with their shirts off, acting like, "Oh, hey, look at me," and the TV cameras have stopped showing them on, on TV, so I don't know what you think you're accomplishing there. Or something like this, where just because a, a player got face-to-face with you, you think you have the right to throw things on the field and throw them out? I mean, what if, say one of those beer cans was still full and Mercado didn't have uh, as good a, a reaction time And that would have caught him in the face, caught him in the eye. Because you saw him catch one of those beer cans. Or say he wasn't wearing a a glove at at the point. And say it was a partially ripped can and he would have cut his hand. That's the last thing we ever need. And as Yankee fans, we should be better than this. You know, when those fans did that, it brought a bad light onto... All Yankee fans everywhere, no matter how much I would say 95% of the fan base is scalding them today, all of us look bad. All of us are looked at as jokes amongst baseball fans everywhere. Now, some of those who are pointing the finger, 
need to look in-house at times and realize they've had embarrassing moments as well. But that was shameful. In a moment that should have been so celebratory, should have been the best celebrating the best win of this young season for the Yankees. It was overtaken by embarrassing scumbags in the crowd trying to make the game about themselves when it really is not. As I said, come to the games, cheer the players you like, boo the players for the other team, show respect. But show respect to them, show respect to the occasional visiting fan that steps into our ballpark, unless they're being rowdy um, and causing problems, then just call security, tell them to get the guy the hell out of here. But something like that can never and should never happen again. That brought a bad light on the franchise, brought a bad light on Yankee fans everywhere. And like I said, we should be better than that. We should be more of the model of what every fan base should strive to be rather than an embarrassing joke. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, April 25th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, have fun with whatever you may be doing in your free time. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Not leave. I'll be back.